The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, January 9th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This will be the biggest week in the Trump pre-presidency. Congress will be asked to approve a spate and a slate, a spate of a slate of appointees with or without full financial disclosure. Let's go without. Okay, sure. Uh, we got a press conference coming up. Maybe he'll cancel it. Uh, it's possible that members of a Beatlemania cover band will accept the invitation to play the inauguration. Seriously, Trump has been rejected by more pop stars than a formal education. But I just want to highlight one throwaway sentence that Kellyanne Conway uttered on Meet the Press as I play talk show karaoke. I put myself in the position of Chuck Todd. He does plan to punish Russia on this. No, I didn't say that. I told you earlier, and I'll repeat it now. He's not the president yet. All of you insist one president at a time, so okay, one president at a time. All of you and some other people are insisting. Who are those? The annoying members of the media insisting this frustrating, disturbing insistence on one president at a time? Who are you talking? Who are the people? Who are the all of you? Oh, maybe you think on Meet the Press, the panel this week is Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Rufus King, and Governor Morris, the guys who wrote the Constitution, the ones who insist on one president, or maybe Noah Webster. He, maybe it was he who insisted on one president at a time, noting that president is from the Latin presidentum, noun use of the present participle, presidere, to act as head or chief. Yeah, we insist on one president at a time. We do suck. You are right, Kellyanne Conway. We are just making it so hard on you to make America great again. Oh, Kellyanne. And that was even before she heard Meryl Streep's speech at the Golden Globes. And that's what I will be spieling about today. The oppressed overclass of Hollywood performers leading the way against this tyranny of contact sports. But first, do you love heuristics? I know I do. One of my favorite thinkers about thinking is Dan Ariely. He explains the mistakes we make when we think and try to engage in reasoning. Or don't. Stay tuned because there's a good payoff at the end. Also, throughout, that is the name of his book, Payoff. It doesn't quite as aptly describe this joke. Dan Ariely is one of our foremost thinkers about thinking, and he is a double Duke, meaning the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. His new book is Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. Hello, Dan. Dr. Ariely, how are you? Hello, hello. Dan, Dan works well. Okay, very good. Many, many conclusions in this book. The big one, if a friend said to me, what's it about? I would say, people think that the way you motivate employees is to pay them more, but pay is really a sign of value and people want to be valued. Am I getting it about right? I think that's, that's one of the two points. <laughs> uh, there's another one that I think is important, which is that we don't really understand pleasure. And I think it might be the first, uh, the first point. So mm -hmm. if you think about pleasure... We have kind of the right to pursue happiness, and you ask people what's happiness, and people often say uh, it's sitting on the beach drinking a mojito, it's watching a sitcom. It's this is this is what pleasure is all about. It's a hedonic, uh, fun thing to do. But but the reality is that lots of things that give us deep meaning and satisfaction and make uh, w life worth living 
are actually the opposite from that. So you think about something like running a marathon. If you came from out of space and you looked at people who are running a marathon, you would say, who punished them? Like, what did these people do that was so <laughs> terrible? And, and yeah. who gave them this cruel punishment? Because everything that they show is just misery. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Who in history is the first man to engage in recreational jogging, and how yeah. soon was he thought to be insane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 you look at those things. You think about uh, writing a book, uh, making a movie. Uh, you think about starting a company. Uh, all of those things uh, don't involve this momentary happiness. Uh, on the contrary, the momentary experience is often miserable. It's often difficult and complex and challenging. You climb a mountain, you run a marathon, you start a company. But nevertheless, despite the fact that it's momentary unpleasant, the, the overall experience is incredibly meaningful and pleasurable in a very different way. And what happens is we often pursue the momentary happiness rather than pursue the, the overall happiness. And this, I think, is the first mistake, that we don't truly understand what gets us to be happy in the long term. And then the second thing is money. And, and money, as you mentioned, is connected to it. That what happens with paying people is that people want to be valued. And valued is about long-term value. You want to feel appreciated. You want to feel that you're contributing, that there's a meaning to your work and so on. But if I pay you, I can actually undermine that value. I can focus you on today but by doing so, I take away from your overall value of how you think about yourself, the workplace, your contribution, and so on. So I have heard, and you don't want to generalize across all generations, but I have seen evidence that millennials, and you teach them, have a slightly different value, more towards what you're talking about, that meaningful work is more important to them than, say, remuneration. Is this true? So, you know, I, 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 it's hard to tell. So, so it's possible that millennials are more open to talk about the importance of, of meaning and connection. It, it's possible that because they get more friends on Facebook, they care more about their reputation than, than people who don't. It's possible that what, what the kind of works we do as we move forward to the knowledge economy have more signaling about people. Today, the kind of job that you pick, like when people ask you, you say, what do you do? You know, the reason like, you know, 500 years ago, nobody would ask you what you would do. Like you were a farmer, like there was no real <laughs> issue there. And it was but, probably in your name anyway, you know, Smithson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but part of it is that now we have a choice. So it, it, they're not just interested in what, what you do, they're interested in what have you chosen to do. And the moment you have more, more free choice and more flexibility, this this decision is more, is more meaningful, right? You basically say, I've chosen to spend my time uh, being a, in a startup. I've chosen to spend my time being a physician. So, so I think it's possible that as, the, as this choice is becoming more, more flexible, there, there are many more types of jobs we can choose. There are many more choices we can make. And maybe what's happening is that people are want to make the choice that they could communicate to other people uh, in some way. So maybe there are some differences. But by the way, in general, in our research, which is basic research on how people make decisions, we don't find big millennial differences. 
So this is perhaps not a question for a cognitive psychologist, but can society exist if everyone is just doing work they find meaning, meaningful? Are there ways to take some work that is perhaps drudgery and impart meaningfulness to it? We need ditches dug still. <laughs> That's right. And, and the answer is yes. We've worked recently with the local municipality on recycling. You know, the people who collect the trash bins outside of people's homes are very frustrated because, you know, they're, they're coming early in the morning, they're collecting recyclables. It's, it's not a fun job, as you can imagine. And we as citizens actually don't treat them very nicely. Uh, we don't put the, the trash bags in a way that, the, the cans in a way that makes it easy for them. We do all kinds of things that are not, that are just not nice. And what, what we did was we simply allowed them to put letters. Actually, these letters were in the form of a sticker on mm-hmm. people's trash bags. If people did not comply with, you know, it just made their life more difficult. They would not put it straight. They would not put it the right place. There were things outside and so on. And we got everybody to comply, right? People, people just don't think. But all of a sudden, people started complying with the rules of how to put their trash and recycling out. And the people collecting the trash were happier. It's kind of shocking, you know, can you get people who are collecting trash to find meaning in their work in the same as brain surgeons? No. But but are we doing lots of things now that are counterproductive and are not allowing them to find the happiness that they could? Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if you've thought about this. It seems to me that there is a business where the correlation between enjoyment and why people do it and money couldn't be more uh, striking, and that is the business of finance. And finance has great sway over our society. And it does seem to me that the people in finance maybe will try to justify some of their job as interesting, but basically score is kept by how much money you make and they work unbelievably hard. And for many of them, it's not terribly exciting except for the fact that they are making money. And I wonder if if your whole analysis of society is that we've really uh, gotten wrong the correlation between remuneration and satisfaction. And yet in the world of finance, that correlation does seem pretty uh, striking, if if that has a distorting effect somehow. And I have no idea if you even looked into this. Yeah, you know, I haven't looked at it, but I, I thought about it, of course, because you look at people at finance and they score themselves on, on money like nobody else. Yeah. But, but you, have to, you have to wonder how much of this scoring based on money is because of scoring and how much of it is money. So I talked to some guys that are doing online gaming. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they told me about one game. I don't play games, so I don't know much about it. But they told me that there's a game that people in Wall Street pay, play that, you know, you get to fight with other people online. I don't know exactly how it works. But they said it's amazing because they spend tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on this game simply to compete with other people. So, so look, there's no question that money can do lots of things. Money could be a yardstick by which we measure competition. But, but you know, if we measure yardstick, <laughs> we measure our success by money, is it because we don't give people other ways to measure their success or because that's the only one? In that game, people measure their success in other ways and people are very excited about doing it. Yeah. So I think, I think the Wall Street situation 
is a little bit a self-fulfilling prophecy that they say, oh, we only care about money. But, you know, it's not true. It's not true. They care about their place in society. They give money to charity. Um, they, they care about their kids. They care about schools. They care about society. You know, they do all kinds of other things. I think it's that we as a society have overemphasized money for that particular activity. I don't think it had to be like this. So look, if you and I were going to design a new bank, mm-hmm. let's, let's say we were going to design a new bank and we were going to position it a little bit like a utility company. We would say, you know what? Banking is incredibly important. It's one of those activities that help society run smoothly. Mm-hmm. Uh, banks give loans to businesses who need capital. They, they give um, money to individuals. It's kind of the, the glue that helps society grow and expand. The glue and, we, and the grease, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And we want to create a, a bank where the bankers would get paid well, by a f- but a fixed amount. And we will have a social mission. And every year we will see how much profit we got and we will distribute it between, I don't know what, whatever, you know. But, but we had a bank like this and it was a socially responsible bank. Don't you think that lots of people would be interested in joining that bank, both as employees and, and as customers? I, I think so. I think so. You know, I, I'm a part now of a, of a small uh, insurance company. And, and the reason I, I decided to join that insurance company was that we had an agreement that we will create an insurance company with no conflicts of interest. So think about what happens with a regular insurance company. Uh, you go in and you give them your money every month. And then if you have a claim, they have an interest in not giving you your money back, right? Because they, they make more money if they keep your money. So, so this is a conflict of interest that is inherent with insurance. So we said, look, we want to create a different kind of insurance company. We will collect people's money, we will pay claims, and if we have money left over at the end of the year, we'll give it to a charity that people have designated at the beginning of the year. So people can get decided that you know they're collected around a certain charity, the World Wildlife Fund, for example, and they say if there's money left over, uh, it goes to that charity. And this way, we, the insurance company, is never conflicted. We're never in a condition to say we get to make more money if we deny or accept your claim. So, so we created this insurance company. We just started working a, a few weeks ago. And you know what? We have a ton of incredibly qualified people who are sick and tired of, of the insurance industry and just want to join a new type of insurance industry that is not trying to screw over their customers. Huh. I, I, think, I think we got to all kinds of terrible situations in the financial industry, but I don't think it was mandated. I don't think we had to get there. I think we could have done much better. And maybe we still can. Uh, what do you think of common sense, the idea of common sense? Yeah, so I think that common sense is often something that people think of as like gut intuition. This is like what my I feel like. And, and I think there are some conditions in which we could develop a reasonable common sense or a reasonable gut intuition. But those conditions are incredibly rare. Most things in life, we don't get to do that many times. We get to you know, get married once, maybe a few times. We get to buy homes a few times. Most of our decisions, we get a very, very small sample of them, and we don't get good feedback. 
by the way. And because of that, the conditions that we would need to develop a good internal sense uh, of whether something is right or wrong is often not the case. We're very, very overconfident in our belief with no justification that we actually know what's the right thing to do. Dan Ariely is the uh, James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke. He is the author of The Upside of Irrationality, The Predictably Irrational. His film documentary is Dishonest, The Truth About Lies, and his new book is Payoff, The Hidden Logic That Shapes Our Motivations. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. And now the spiel. Perhaps you've heard a shadowy foreign organization whose methods are opaque, whose influence is far greater than your average American may guess, sought to call the very notion of American democracy into question. No, it's not the KGB or its successor, the GRU. I speak of the HFPA, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, and the fundamental jolt to democracy delivered over and over again at the Golden Globes. Their well-coiffed and in some cases well-lubricated stars were oftentimes recognized for their portrayals of serial killers who got interrogated while pooping. Okay, I never saw nocturnal animals, but I'm sure that's what won Aaron Taylor Johnson his Golden Globe. And I had not really heard of Aaron Taylor Johnson, but I would just like to note that he has two last names. Between those two names, you'll find three last names of presidents. But the president on everyone's mind was the incoming one, of whom Meryl Streep said this. And this instinct to humiliate when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful, it filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Okay, go up with that thing. This prompted a series of asinine Twitter responses from Donald Trump, including two assertions that are as close to objectively untrue while still technically qualifying as subjective statements. One, he said he wasn't mocking the disabled reporter Serge Kovaleski, and the second was that Meryl Streep was overrated. All right, let's go one by one. Of course he was mocking Serge Kovaleski. What he's really saying when he says I wasn't mocking him is I wasn't mocking him for his disability. Now, it should be noted that what he was mocking him for was he was saying that Serge Kovaleski backtracked on reports, which he didn't do. And let's let's not forget that those reports were Serge Kovalevsky's very good reporting on the assertion that Trump made that he saw legions of Muslims on rooftops celebrating 9-11. Also, he said he didn't know Serge Kovalevsky, even though they met dozens of times when Kovalevsky covered him for the Daily News. They were on a first name basis for many, many years. And for someone of whom Trump was unaware of his disability, he really nailed it. I mean, he did hand motions that kind of mimic and show how Serge Kovaleski holds his hands. It's like saying, I didn't know Sammy Davis Jr. had one eye. I just decided to point my eyes in different directions when doing an impersonation to emphasize that the Candyman was a man of unusual vision. Anyway, Trump called Meryl Streep overrated. Let's not forget that. I guess it's possible that she can both be the greatest screen actress of all time, but to some people, 
They also think of her as a three-time All-Big Sky Conference running back. But that was Merrill Hodge. And if you are one of those people, then you have overrated her. Now, I'm not the only one who is making football references. There was also the man who led the Pittsburgh Steelers in touchdowns in 1990. No, damn it, that was Merrill Hodge also. All right, let's go back to Merrill Streep. So Hollywood is crawling with outsiders and foreigners. And if we kick them all out, you'll have nothing to watch but football and mixed martial arts, which are not the arts. <laughs> Let's take the most popular form of entertainment in America and another increasingly popular form of entertainment among a strata of society that you've made little effort to understand, and let's poke it in the eye. Streep also said this. You and all of us in this room really belong to the most vilified segments in American society right now. Think about it. Hollywood, foreigners, and the press. You, Lori, did say that first. It was clever enough. Streep added that she and the people in the room, the best-known celebrities on the planet, were among the most vilified people in society. And look, a lot of what Streep said was delivered well. She had good points mixed in there. But this sense of persecution among the supremely privileged was kind of wince-inducing. And it wasn't just Merrill, who I said went overboard. Like Jane Fonda would have went overboard had she been cast as Silkwood, or if Marianne Cotillard were somehow made to go out of Africa, or if Faye Dunaway were in The Deer Hunter, or if Halle Berry were the French lieutenant's woman. Although, let's be real, kind of Halle Berry and everything. The entire crowd of Hollywood glitterati was in such easy agreement that we are just on the precipice of ruin. The, and, and they, they as truth-tellers and as artists, they alone could diagnose our malaise. It was this echo chamber where it was pretty clear that any half-baked anti-Trump reference would get applause, even if your film centered on a bunny trying to rescue an otter. Uh, we wanted Zootopia to be a film uh, that not only entertained kids, but also spoke to adults about uh, embracing diversity even when there are people in the world who want to divide us uh, by using fear. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, yeah, this is where we clap. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Zootopia was a cute kids movie. It did have that theme that you can be anything you want, which is so revolutionary in animated films. I had never seen it before, except maybe in The Little Mermaid, Pinocchio, Cinderella, Pocahontas, Toy Story, Lady and the Tramp, Aladdin, Mulan, Finding Nemo, Dumbo, Up, Big Hero 6, How to Train Your Dragons, 1 and 2, Wally, Monsters, Inc. I'll stop. Every single animated movie tells us you could be anything, except Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown always misses the football. No, wait, in the Peanuts movie, at the end, Charlie Brown gets the girl and rescues his kite from the tree because even Charlie Brown could be anything he wants. Yet, in Zootopia, there are still some stereotypes that can't be avoided. Let's take rabbits, like the main character's parents, her country bumpkin rabbit parents. Your dad, me, your 275 brothers and sisters. Oh! So rabbits still wildly feckoned. And what animals are criminals in the world of Zootopia? Sly foxes and this guy. I popped the weasel. Yeah, a weasel. The thief was a weasel. 
I actually do hate the message of a world of nature acting out a human version of utopia. Animals wouldn't think this was utopia. Animals would think like if you were a dingo, you'd think plenty of babies to eat. That'd be your utopia, right? I hate this. I understand that you have to commit to this premise to further the comedy to in fact have an entire reason for a movie, but it is not how the world works. And the next time some idiot tries to make a wolverine their pet, you just know they grew up watching Zootopia. Nature is actually unsentimental, unyielding, and coldly amoral. It's fine to make a B-plus kids flick that ignores these tropes. I mean, I, I get it. All dogs do not go to heaven. In real life, all dogs lick themselves in inopportune times. I understand why one is a hit movie and the other is just a series of hilarious YouTube videos. But stop congratulating yourself on being these munificent do-gooders. You made a cartoon with a plot ripped off from Chinatown, except it's a bunny instead of Jake, and you won an award because the Golden Globes insanely didn't even nominate Finding Dory. All right, I have to calm down. I feel like Billy on the street arguing with that homeless guy that Meryl Streep is better than Glenn Close. Glenn Close! I see a pattern of life choices in that answer, sir. But on this night, Meryl did not stand up to the forces of tyranny as much as she merely stood for the ineffective indulgence of self-importance. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube and Mary Wilson produced the gist they fear if we do away with journalism, then we'll only be left with the art of the deal. And that is not an art at all. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts for Christmas, got a gift certificate for any participating art of shaving location. He went to one and found out it's not an art. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, angrily spit toaster pastry out of his mouth after the strawberry filling burned his tongue, screaming, those aren't tarts. The gist, Garfunkel, Carney, Fonzarelli, are those are the real arts. Oopperoo, deperoo, deperoo. Thanks for listening.